This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, we are back with multiple guests sharing about climate change. So what is it and what can we do about it? To start us off, climate change, as most of us will know, is to do with greenhouse gases, to do with affecting the, the climate, and people go on about ice caps all the time. But what is climate change? Uh, climate change basically is the accumulation of uh, greenhouse gas in the atmosphere. Greenhouse gases come from burning fuel. And the energy industry burns fuels mainly for transportation, but also for generating electricity. So electricity can be generated in renewable resources. These resources will not burn fuels. We, we can generate electricity by the sun, and there's plenty of it. And we can generate electricity with the wind. But uh, and when we do that, we won't uh, release any more greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. So the opportunity here is to really move the world from a world that's burning fuel to create electricity and for transportation for other energy to a world that's using renewable resources like solar and wind and not burning those fuels, not releasing those greenhouse gases. And that's one of the biggest impacts uh, to stop or, or, or climate change. It makes me wonder, how did we get to a point where it got this that meaning there'll be a lot of inertia involved you know and you sort of think at what point did we start making the changes and then wait for it to make a difference was there a point where we then started to research this and figure out if it could be done it's just took this long that it has got this bad it just seems like a an issue with time at this moment of how long will it take to make a difference well, uh, you know, it started as early as the Industrial Revolution, where uh, people started burning fuels for uh, creating uh, products and uh, creating energy. Uh, and in the last uh, 30 years, there's been a realization that burning these fuels creates this lasting effect that's man-made on the atmosphere, on climate change. And since this realization it took time to get this news out to everybody, we're trying to looking at ways to live the same quality of life. You know, we still want our products. We still want to travel. Uh, we still want our electricity and power, but without uh, creating these greenhouse gases. And the solutions are out there, by the way. There's, there's the solutions are here. Uh, we just need to start to use them in a massive way, both on residential side, but also on the commercial and, and industrial side. I fully agree with what Boaz is saying, and and beyond that is it's kind of that boiling frog scenario. You know, over the last few decades, we didn't really realize. But now if we just kind of open our eyes and, and believe our own eyes and just you, it's pretty hard to deny. But beyond even the energy and, and what we're trying to do with True Earth and, and focus on even just the plastic production. But in the U.S. alone, it contributed to 232 million metric tons of greenhouse gases annually. And that's set to surpass coal emissions by 2030. Like there, there is a lot of um, impacts that we can make decisions in in our household to to start that correction path that Boaz was talking about. That's what I find quite interesting about this: is where do we start? Is it energy production? Is it coal? Is it plastic? Is it food? Is it transport? It sounds like everything contributes to it and when you think solutions and you think okay where do we make the changes it sounds like a huge task to do all at once go from no plastic no fossil fuels no petrol no diesel all at once it just seems like a monumental shift in how we organize ourselves how do we go about our day as a planet and as a species and I guess there's a part of me that's thinking, why did we start with this? It's almost like um, the analogy that I sometimes think about, whether it's true or not, is the idea of factory farming was needed at the time because it was all that we had. And now it's no longer all that we had. We're looking at other methods, but you can't, you can't change the past. You also can't hate the past because it got you to where you are now. Like you can't exist without, the past and past technologies and past ways of governing otherwise you can't 
you can't live without those things. It was the best that we could do with what we had at the time. That's the point, Michael, is that every movement and, and every innovation and it starts with, with one, you know, there there it has to just start. So yes, we have to start on them all. You know, the reality is you can't go straight to bright in one day. Um, you do have to start a movement. You have to keep things moving along. And that's the the key to, you know, even we're, we're trying to do you know, with millions of people in 80 countries all wanting to make one little change in one little room. That's where this starts. And and it will take every sector to kind of to step in um, all, unfortunately, all at the same time right now. Jamie, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think these are all great topics. But, you know, in my career as an environmental engineer, and I had to teach what climate change was to folks who didn't have the answers to this or didn't have any knowledge. It's much more than just, um, you know, greenhouse gases. Okay. It's much more than the icebergs and the polar bears and everything, you know, that's being shown in the media. Um, what really is happening is that it's contributing from a lot of industries and it's not just greenhouse gases. There's a lot of chemicals like volatile organic compounds, uh, particulate matter, which is dust, nitric oxide, sulfur oxides, so all of these chemicals, including the greenhouse gases, cause not only this shift in temperature in, in our, you know, in our on our earth and in, in our living space, but it also affects our health. So I always tell people you cannot have an environmental issue or impact without having a health impact. And I really think that that health impact is really what got everyone uh, to thinking about this because it really does come hand in hand. And um, it's all about knowledge at the end of the day. You only can know if something is an issue if you know it is. So I think that what happened was there was a lot of diseases that came about, like allergies is something so simple that is actually contributed or caused by climate change. Um, you know, there's respiratory illnesses, there's cancer, even death. I mean, a lot of uh, deaths worldwide do occur because of air pollution. So there's a lot of um, different chemicals being emitted in the air from different sources. It's not just uh, fuels um, and transportation, although that is a huge aspect of it and one of the biggest areas that we can definitely improve on. There's definitely uh, other areas where this is happening, where chemical plants, byproducts are getting emitted into the air and people didn't realize that these chemicals were harmful until they did. And that's when they decided to make these changes. So I always just tell, you know, want to tell people it's 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 it kind of just has to do with environmental health and safety at the end of the day, and it has to do with more chemicals and greenhouse gases. It's not just oh carbon dioxide. There's other chemicals that are very much involved in this that do get emitted, and what really has to happen from an industry standpoint is that everyone has to take a chance and really follow environmental regulations. It can be done. I've seen it done in industry. I've been in industry where it was done. It is very complicated, but the environmental agencies, the EPA and the state regulatory agencies in the US are very good at working with, you know, manufacturing plants, um, you know, transportation uh, companies and whatnot. So they are very good about working with people. So it's just, it just takes organization, but I've seen it done. Colin, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think we've known about We've known about the, the climate change, global warming problem for a long time, over over a, over a century, and and for the last fifty years, it's been recognised in science. Uh, we knew it was we knew it was an emerging issue. Um, we're now at one point one degrees above pre-industrial temperature level globally, and we're seeing the consequences of that this year, last year, wildfires, uh, sea level rise, storms, hurricanes around the world, flooding. You know, we are seeing the consequences of our failure to act on the climate emergency, and it is playing out now in both the developing and the developed world. Um, I just want to highlight really the fact that it's not down to individual action. It's not we're not going to change the world by everybody, uh, you know, putting their recycles, recycled, recycled materials in the recycle bin. That's not going to have the big impact because it's about transforming the system, the global system. We need to transform production. We need to transform transportation. We need to transform food systems so that they are no longer extractive, so that they're cyclic and they re they're renewable. And I think the key, the, thing, the only thing that I would recommend individuals to do is switch to a plant-based diet and don't take as many flights as you currently do. Those are the two things that individuals can do. But planting trees, switching to recyclable cups, they're, they're just fiddling around the edges. We need the energy system to transform. We need the transportation system to, to transform. I would like to live in a country where public transport was the number one option for people to get from A to B. 
and not the private gas guzzling car because that's that that provides a service to everybody so you know it's not about individual action it's about transforming society thanks i can't imagine ever trying to do things on my own thinking that i'd actually make a difference it sounds weird but whenever i have a a cardboard straw that wants to dissolve after the first 30 seconds of using it 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 doesn't make me think that i'm making a difference with that all the while planes are going overhead like it, it seems like they, even the lay person is probably sat there wondering how much of a difference am i making but then it's like enough raindrops causes the oceans like if everybody did it everybody every single day does that not make a difference and then i'm thinking okay well people still make plastic straws so is my paper straw and all the plastic straws being produced because they're not stopping it like as you say colin it's kind of like well i might think i'm doing good but they're still creating the plastic straws whether i'm having one of those or not it's still kind of happening and then if enough buying power happens do they shift production who knows we're not there yet i don't think it's just making me think that, as you say, it's about the system. But Brad, what 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 do you think that we can really do? Yeah, I, you know, I, I agree with 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 Colin that there is this reality um, that it's going to take a lot more than an individual. It's going to take systemic change. I'm also a believer and a firm believer in the intersectionality of environmentalism, social responsibility, and capitalism. And only true movement will when we, when we can actually get that intersection, when capitalism comes into play, that's when the real money comes in and starts making this happen. Otherwise, we're going to be using tax dollars and governmental impacts and maybe you know taxes that, that are applicable to certain manufacturers. But if we can find a way to move and to ensure that um, the wallet the, the consumerism, whether that's consumerism at a, at a corporate industrial or or at an individual level, is thinking of the impact of that dollar being spent, then we have the ability to 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 re- truly get cr- critical mass. But it will start with disruption. Somebody has got to disrupt this thing, um, and unfortunately, the the you know. Mother Nature may be our disruptor. She's the one that's correcting herself. She's the one that's disrupting us, and we have to we have to react. Jamie, do you want to carry on from there? Yeah, actually, that was a that was a great segue because the number one thing that controls all of this is money. That's all it is. And you know, when we had an environmental issue at one of the plants I was working at, you know, as an environmental engineer, the the way that I would bring it to upper management would I would bring it as um, you know okay this is going to cause money issues you're going to lose money if you do if if this doesn't happen that's how I had to bring up environmental issues for things to happen because at the end of the day these big corporations only care about their pockets and how deep they are so if the if you know you know if the everyday consumer drives for these environmental solutions and it ends up impacting you know, uh, production or, you know, money generation, then that's really going to get people listening. It's really going to start a change. But in general, I mean, the the big changes have to come from the industry and have to come either from regulatory or something driving that money down, you know, and, and a lot of a lot of stuff what's happening right now is that many, many customers do want those plant-based or eco-friendly products, they are driving it. So I would say just to continue driving that, continuing to green, you know, gain knowledge, and um, and just as a whole, continuing to do that, continuing to demand for it because supply, you know, demand, it's it's just something that's always happened in business and it's no it's no different here. So money drives everything. Um, and as long as as the money impact is there, then there will be some changes made. Boas? Yeah, I want to talk about the, the big kind of movements as well. So as mentioned earlier, the grid is the biggest infrastructure that mankind ever built. So the electric grid, uh, the way we manufacture the electricity since it started is mostly by, by burning fuels. You know, there's good stuff like, like uh, doing hydro plants, but they're not the most common. So we're burning coal or burning natural gas in order to create electricity. And we're also burning that for transportation, for heating. Um, now, we can create electricity with the sun and with the wind. And that electricity can not only use to create, uh, that energy cannot only be used for electricity, 
but also for moving our cars, for heating our showers. Uh, so instead of you know burning uh, natural gas at your house for uh, heating the water, we can do that with an electric heater. Now, the problem is that solar and wind, they're resources that we don't control. You know, we don't control when the sun shines and we don't control when the wind blows. So in order to make this transformation, we have to really change the way the grid is built. So for 140 years, 120 years, the grid has been pretty much the same. You know, we would crank up the, the power plants and, and burn fuels and create electricity. But now we need to create power plants that sit there and wait for the, you know, the sun to shine and for the wind to blow. And what a lot of people don't realize is that the match for that is energy storage. So in order to have electricity at night, so you could heat your uh, shower at night or you, know, you could uh, charge your car at night, we have to store that electricity. Um, and, and there's a big energy infrastructure that needs to be built. So both the renewable plants themselves, uh, solar and wind, but also the energy storage to store that, whether it's in the grid or in your house or in the you know, commercial building or industrial building. With that together, we will be able to get rid of a lot of the, of the gases, both, you know, Jamie mentioned, uh, you know, a bunch of different gases that are created when we, when we burn those fuels, um, and it kind of enables us to, to get rid of all of them. And we believe that that big push, you know, should come, one, from the regulators and, you know, the countries in the world that want to get to 100% renewable energy, um, but also, you know, uh, residential and, and uh, corporates have a big part in that as well because they can decide to buy energy uh, that's green and they can decide to store energy. Um, and that's kind of what, what, what we need to strive for. Sarah, did you want to chip in at the, the current kind of conversation? Yes, I wanted to touch base in a very important topic, which is agriculture and food production. And I think it's one of the most important things that we have to shift and, and change right now. And we have to move to a different system of food production. And I want to talk about regenerative agriculture, which is super important uh, to help improve the health of the soil. And basically what this is, is a restoration approach to food production, where uh, the key factor is improving the health of the soil, bringing it back to that complex underground ecosystem that not only increases fertility, but can also recharge water resources, reduce soil erosion and capture like large amounts of carbon. And practically we have to follow like a couple of steps, but it's basically reduce tilling, planting cover crops, rotating crops and using compost instead of synthetic fertilizers. And these are age old practices that are being uh, practiced all around the world by indigenous communities and small farmers and that we have lost when we decided to shift to industrial and chemical agricultural practices. And I think this is key for fighting climate change. This is one of the best ways to do it. That's one of the things that is curious to me. I get the impression that we're having to go back in time to before the Industrial Revolution and we started using machines, but we're trying to use technology of the future to enhance what we were doing in the past. And we probably did use a lot of wind when we had ships to to power and like rowing boats and stuff like that. And I think we're ready. Like I think we're ready to use the technology of today to cut out the process of getting here. Some people don't really talk about this a whole lot, but the planet will still be here. We just won't be. Uh, we're not going to be able to make it, but the planet will be fine. Um, it will still do its thing, and we just won't be able to live on it anymore. Um, Colin, what what do you think about that? Uh, no, totally agree. I mean, I think I think it sort of brings me back to something that Boaz, I think Sarah's highlighting a good issue that Boaz raised, and that is about fundamental change about of, of, of systems. Sarah's highlighting it for agriculture, Boaz is highlighting it for energy, transport, power production. Those four systems need to be changed. Um, and I think we've talked a little bit, and, and um, Jamie, you know, talked about regulation, it's not going to be market driven because if it's market driven, it's going to be profit based. And what we're talking about here is we're talking about optimizing environmental systems. And that means that we have to bring in social and environmental values as well. It can't just be based upon economic indicators. And I think Sarah's highlighting a really valuable point. When we look at agricultural development, we tend to look at one size fits all. You get you 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 maximize your production based upon 
uniform fields, single crops. They're easy to harvest. You don't have to sort crop A from crop B. It's a simple way of doing it. You, you spray your pesticides, you plant it at this date, you all harvest it all at one moment. But is that the best use of that land? Is that the best use for the people who farm that land? No. You know, if we go back 100, 200 years and we look at smallholder production, they optimise production based upon their little bit of land that they lived on. If they were close to the river, they got more water supply so they can grow those thirstier crops. If they live further away from the river, they either spend a lot of time carrying the water backwards and forwards or they grow crops that are more suited to that environment. The soil conditions across that, that small area are not going to be the same. Some areas are going to be more warlike, some are going to be more drier. Some crops are suited to those different conditions. What we need to do is we need to plan our food production based upon the productivity of the land and the environment upon it, which, which is which it, it will be grown, rather than trying to bulldoze it to be all the same so that we can grow this hybrid crop that's been produced in a laboratory that needs this amount of water, this amount of fertiliser, and will produce this many tonnes of food. We need to rethink our food production system. And, you know, regenerative agriculture is the right way to go because it will deliver multiple benefits. It will deliver employment in remote rural areas. It will provide um, you know, carbon capture, it will provide environmental benefits and it will reduce our dependence upon pesticides and upon organic uh, um, uh, external inputs. You know, Silent Spring, Rachel Carson, that was written in 1962. We've known about these problems for long enough. Too many people have died as a result of pesticide overuse. We're polluting our water sources. They're going to be problems for the next generation. We're not thinking we need to do something now to resolve those problems. Sarah, do you want to uh, dive in? Yes, just a quick addition to what Colin said. I agree with everything that he just mentioned. Uh, and the problem with these systems changing based on market-driven practices is that they are not taking into account the small farmers behind the food production. So these market-driven strategies often lead uh, to creating labels and certifications uh, that the consumer then uses to purchase a food product, etc. But then the payment of those certifications, it's being held by the small farmer, who often in Latin America, where I live, and in Kenya, where we work as well, eh, they don't have their basic needs met, but they do have to pay for a, cert for a certification for them to be able to sell the product to the market. So there's also a very huge link between inequality and climate change that we have to take into account into this conversation. I think... A result of that should probably be we need to learn to share these resources a little bit. Like the profit of someone that is near water, they can use that to benefit everybody else. I think Sarah's point on things like red tape, as they call it, certifications, monitoring, ticking boxes, it's slowing the people down that benefit from the speed of it like if someone's able to grow crops harvest them get them out there but they've got all these dozen checks that they have to do and all these like adhesions that they have to make to all these other companies and organizations and it just makes things difficult and i say this as as someone that cares a lot about the planet not just because i live here but loads of other people live here as well and Billions of us are all trying to get along. And I wonder whether we've got to a point where we're going to collapse under our own weight. So I wonder if we could shift a little bit to the actions that we're taking and whether we can actually take them. So not just about the practicality of it, but what would it take to do it? So let's let, let's take food production as an example, because I think we all need food to survive. We've got to a point where we've probably done okay up until climate change became a problem. And now we're making changes. So if we draw a line under the past, we did the best that we could with what we had. What are our options in terms of food production, how we grow it, create it, distribute it, consume it, to break it down a little bit? I'm happy to jump in. I mean, I think I think it's it's a case of optimizing production to the local area. If we look at, if you talked about this earlier, Michael, you know, traditional and indigenous knowledge. That is knowledge that has been generated over generations of experiential learning. That crops, you know, these crops are suited to this environment. They work in these conditions. That's why they grow there. That's why we produce them. 
I think what we've tried to do is we've tried to say, okay, but I want my, you know, I want coffee here or I want I want wine here. And we've transported those crops around the world and tried to sort of uniformly create this uh, this this cultured environment in which, which is going to produce our food and, and all of the commodities that we want to con- want to consume. That's I think something we've got to really re-explore we've got to look we've got to go back and we've got to learn from those indigenous practices and we've got to say right okay these areas are suited to these crops how, how can we actually um, incentivize farmers to produce these crops and the other thing is is a lot of crops require a lot of husbandry they're not things that you plant in the ground and just leave they're things that you have to go in and you have to weed you know if you're not going to use pesticides and herbicides you've got to you've got to weed them you've got to um, keep the the pests and the birds and that, those things off it that is, you know, that is what, where that employment is going to come from. Um, ideally, you're going to be looking at smaller fields because we want to restore hedges and we want to st- restore wood breaks because, you know, um, climate change is leading to increased intensity of storms and they can damage crops. You know, we see that around the world. So how do we return environments to a more uh, diverse landscapes where they offer much more productive opportunity, growing crops together? I've seen in many areas of the world where they intercrop, they grow multiple crops in the same area, patch of land. Therefore, the, the farmer can harvest them successionally rather than everything all at one go, clear the land and then replant it. These systems, you know, we've got to re-explore these systems. We've got to think about, you know, maximizing production based upon the productive productivity of that land and that and that and that particular climate, and not trying to come up with these, these single um solutions to, to food security. But we've also got to remember, you know, food production is not just about agriculture. It's about livestock. And what we're seeing is destruction of forest areas to produce soy, to make animal feed, to feed to animals that are kept in unsanitary conditions because they're no longer out on green pastures. They're no longer grazing or or browsing out in the wild. They are literally being kept in stalls and fed processed food and then we wonder why we've got the problems that we have in terms of our own health because we're eating we're eating food from those those animals which are you know not the same as if they were produced in a more natural system so we've got to think about you know livestock we also got to think about fisheries over extraction of fishery resources from 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 uh, the oceans and of course forestry you know, if we could think about fuel, food and fibre and the productivity of, of agricultural landscapes, we, we'd be a long way to solving many of the problems that we're, we're facing at the moment. Yeah, from, from the energy perspective, it's, uh, I'm, I'm going to just put a, a longer term out there again on the potential of, of renewables. Uh, what a lot of people don't realise is that you can create uh, drinkable water, uh, water that's suitable for agriculture by energy. So in Israel, uh, 70% of the water uh, comes from desalination. So you take uh, energy and you uh, desalinize the seawater and create drinkable water. And that's very possible. Now, if you have energy that comes from renewable resources, you can um, create water everywhere on the planet because the, the oceans are there. Um, and then what that means is that you can create viable agriculture in places that so far didn't do that because you didn't have the water to do that. So on a long-term view, it's about sharing this knowledge of how to create renewable energy uh, amongst you know, other countries that have less favorable water conditions and as a result have less favorable uh, agricultural conditions. And then... Um, you, cre- you create basically um, renewable uh, resources uh, for growing food. But this takes time. You know, it takes time. It takes uh, knowledge. It takes spreading the wealth uh, to countries that uh, uh, are less fortunate to have that. Um, but at the end, you, c- you can really create, uh, at least on a plant-based, something that's sustainable. Um, and that's part of the renewable energy transition uh, that it also brings with it. One of the the things that I got curious about is when farms and supermarkets and all of these other organizations and companies, they collaborate and they work together and they work hand in hand, supposedly, and they, they try to be as sustainable as possible. You know, there are transportation that's run off biomass fuels and things of that nature like it's 
amazing to see how far we've come in a lot of ways. And there are a lot of things that we need to start incentivizing for it to happen. And I wonder what your thoughts are on on that. The idea of we need to start incentivizing the farmers or incentivizing the end point, which would be supermarkets, which would be shops, which would be things that interact with the public. Where are all the incentives currently? And what would it take to actually shift things? What would it take to shift those incentives so that everyone benefits? Because there are some companies that might actually be worse off by doing some of the things that we're discussing today rather than keeping things the way that they are. Well, I'm going to start. So I think um, companies, especially food companies, in, in my case, because I work at a food company, we have to get closer to the farmers. And that means uh, working through direct trade relationships and buying directly from the farmers and getting to know the farmers and the regions where we are producing our food. Because some of the food companies just buy through middlemen and they have no idea what is going on on the field and what the necessities of those communities are and what are the motivators that they need to keep growing food in a sustainable way. So for me, the first step is to get to know where your food is being produced. If you're a food company, go to the regions, visit the farms, talk to the people, talk to the communities and work in a collaborative way with them and in a long-term way so they can also grow and, you know, have a dignified life because regenerative agriculture does not mean anything if we cannot guarantee a dignified life for those small farmers that are working so hard for our planet and to help sequester carbon with these amazing re regenerative practices so that for me is the first step then with regenerative agriculture and as Colleen mentioned one of the main practices is building these agroforestry systems or intercropping which means that the farmer is going to have not only one product to sell, but many products that he can sell and uh, have a year-round income uh, so he don't have to depend or wait for the harvest of the coffee or the cocoa. He will have constant money coming in into the farm and for his family. So that's one of the best ways to also motivate or incentivize a farmer uh, it's buying all of the product that he is producing. And third, paying a premium. Really, these guys in the field are doing a lot of work to help restore these ecosystems, and we should pay more for that money. They deserve it. The planet deserves it. So I think we should pay premiums that are not only attached to certifications, but that we can also um, back that information with traceability system and transparency uh, systems within the food companies. And paying a premium is also one of the way best ways to incentivize this and also educating the consumer so we can keep moving the market and moving it towards to regenerative agriculture because right now 6% of the food production of the planet is being produced by organic um, practices and that is insane taking into account all of the work that we have to do to fight climate change I actually had a weird conversation with a friend and what the conversation was was essentially the cost of your phone if everything that got you that phone was reasonable you may have to add two zeros onto the cost of your phone just to have it in your hands. If you're then going through your your Apple shop or your some people shop at their mobile network, so you go into your, your O2 shop or your, your Vodafone or whatever it is, you walk in and you get the phone and it's got two zeros more than, than it used to. How many people would actually buy a phone that could cost them in excess of 10,000, 20,000 pounds or dollars to have the phone? Why would they do it? I, I think progress would be more meaningful. I think what Zara is suggesting would make a difference. I think it wouldn't just be meaningless. I think it'd have more of a purpose behind it. And I think there would be people out there that would actually go for that, that would actually be prepared to put more in, invest more, because it was beneficial and because there was a real meaning behind what it is they were doing. It's a great point, and I think uh, a lot of people point to a very similar point that, that 
brings us into a, a similar result, which is the claim that goods are not priced correctly. So basically, we, we call that externality. So uh, we're making a liter of gasoline. You price that, and it's based on you know price of gasoline, taking that out of the ground, but it's not including the real price of the damage it, it makes. And if we would price all those externalities into the product, so each product, you know, whether it's plastic or food that's not creating sustainably and all that, and we would really price it. So not only the direct costs that, you know, were incurred to bring that good to you, but also the indirect costs. So what does it cost us to, you know, to have people in the hospital, you know, sick with, with you know, uh, the gases that Amy mentioned earlier? What does it cost us to build the roads? What does it cost us to fix the world right now because of all these GHG gases and put that price into where that belongs, all those externalities, then products would be much more expensive, at least, you know, the non-sustainable products, because, you know, that lettuce, if it's grown next to you, would not be priced as much uh, because, you know, it wasn't transported a long way and all that. But the lettuce that, you know, you're eating or, or the fruit that you're eating now that's coming from the other side of the world, because it's not the season for that food where you are. But if you price in the gas and, and all that and, you know, building the ship and, you know, all that, all those things that came into that, it would cost you a lot. So I agree with that point, you know, it's both on the in incremental value that you get, but also on kind of what real damage that product created in order to bring it to your hand. I think Sarah probably has a lot of experience on, you know, on that sounds like so. In that same way, consumerism also is being... Um, represented in, in the food industry. And right now, a lot of people is linking uh, food security issues with climate change because a lot of people and experts are saying like, okay, we are not going to be able to produce enough food for 10 billion people that we are going to have in 2050. But at the same time, we are already producing food for 10 billion people and we are wasting a third of it from the field to the table. And the economic value of global lost food amount to $1 trillion every year. And that is food that could feed 2 billion people. And we have at the same time a lot of food, but a lot of countries and regions that are suffering from hunger. So there's also, this is a hard pill, pill to, swallow, to swallow, but we have to not over purchase. We have to reduce oversized portions as well. And by ordering fewer takeout meals and we can change a little bit uh, this, this behavior. In less developed countries, for instance, food losses tend to occur, for example, closer to the farm. In Colombia, we don't have access or roads, roads in the farms where the countryside is. So most of the farmers have to walk or take mules or donkeys to the closest city and they can take uh, up to 12 to 13 to 15 to 18 hours in a meal just to take the produce of their farm. So we just have to think about the food waste that we're having right now and the consumerism in, in human society. Can we go on to carry on from there? Yeah, and I also want to add that like, you know, I think we all have the same, uh, you know, the same thought process here, but it's interesting on my end to see it from different viewpoints, like food from Sarah's point of view or, or you know, energy, um, which is really interesting for me. Um, but from like an industry standpoint, you know, manufacturing plants, when you manufacture a chemical or a product, you do what you know, and you kind of just do that for many, many years, and you don't change anything that's not broken, as they say, right? And what this really is going to is going to need is it's going to need some innovation, some research and development and time to redevelop these new processes that we have. It can be done. I've seen it done. I've done it myself. It just takes a lot more thought, a lot more effort and a lot more time. And when you think about industry and manufacturing, it's all about money and, you know, fast money and what makes profit. Again, I always come back to that. But, um, but the thing is, is that that's what's important to these companies. But there is a way to pivot. There is a way to be different and innovative. It just takes a disruptor to do that. Um, but it can be done. And it just it just has to get done because we can't we can't keep going the way that we're going. 
Um, you know, I definitely, you know, when, when people start to think about the different planets that we have and going, you know, to different planets, that's great, but we really need to take care of the planet that we're on now. And it's never too late. It's never too late to start or to even be right and do the right thing. So we just got to do it. That's what it comes down to. And if I can, if I continue to kind of just build on what everyone's saying from, from, uh, from a consumption perspective, there's no question that that we are we are over consuming what we need. That that if we all consumed exactly what we we really needed, we might be all done, and this problem would be good. And and it will take that disruption. You know, we we're taking on the biggest of big. You know, there's big tobacco, there's big oil, and then there's big soap. And and we laundry detergent is called big soap. And we have found that way to turn liquid laundry detergent into a sheet and put it in an envelope at, you know, a 90 plus percent reduction in its in its transportation size. So just taking that disruption, we do know that people will pay a premium when there's clear understanding of the value that they're getting for that premium of that of whatever they're doing, whether it's a product or a service or food. And with that, you know, we've now had in four years, we have millions of customers in 80 different countries. So we know there's a there's a subset of people that will start this process going. But we also realize that once people understand that there is a operational efficiency to doing some of these things and waste is reduced and the, the cost of goods sold start to come down with, with economies of scale, there will be a shift. The key here, I, I believe, when we talk about right pricing things is not only is it a living wage scenario, but how do we find that intersectionality? I'll come back around to that, that intersectionality of that capitalism, environmentalism, and social responsibility. I, I challenge every company that I talk with, how can you take your waste and turn it into something good? Like we take our waste and we donate it to, you know, we have donated over 20 million loads of laundry detergent around the world to, play it to, to hospitals in, in the farthest regions. There is a way, but we need the leadership. Every one of us wakes up in the morning, we make decisions. Doesn't matter whether we're we're a CEO like I am sitting in a seat, or whether we're a government official, or whether we're a consumer. The question is whether we're going to make a decision that will impact our life as a group, as a whole, as a community, or as an individual. And I think if we stop thinking individualized thinking and we start thinking as a group, we have a a very good chance to get out of this very very quickly. And this is what I think we we need to open this this kind of worms on is this idea of what can we do what are the steps that we can take what are we taking what's in the future and also there's there's a weird concept of unpredicted long-term consequences do these happen i imagine when we first came up with the ideas that we're trying to now stop at the moment we probably had no idea that it would ever get to this point you know we're talking like 50 100 plus years of doing things a certain way i don't think there's anybody 100 to 200 years ago that would have ever known that we'd be here at, at the moment there might be i don't know but there may be consequences of the things that we're discussing today that we're unaware of that we may then have to consider a generation or two from now to then have to restart something else to be able to solve the problems that we're creating with what we're discussing today so there's a weird cycle that we tend to go through of trying to make changes trying to make adjustments and then 20 30 50 years from now we have to backtrack because of these consequences and we can't handle these consequences and there's something else that on the horizon that we have to considering that we have to stop doing it's almost like we're recreating another problem for the next generation um brad is that something that's happening is that something that you can speak to yeah there's there's no question that you know there were people 200 years ago that that could see this coming um 50 years ago for sure and and usually we kind of we hid them um, or we, we'd buy their patent and we'd bury them. Whatever it was that we would do as a society, we, we did that because we wanted our current world to be perfect and we wanted it faster and we wanted it more convenient. Um, and, but there is something that, that I, know I kind of resonate around and that's you know if your grandkids come to you 
and say, you know, grandpa, once you knew, what did you do? So if, if we think that mindset, we know now, this is not about whether we know this is real or not. It's about what did you do about it? So the problem with say a, a other type of conflict that drives humans is a war, right? When a gun comes out, all of a sudden people react, but there's no gun here. You know, even though the, the fire, the, the hills are on fire and there's a hurricane where there shouldn't be a hurricane, we still have this kind of, eh, it's really not really happening. But I think it is now there's more and more people understanding it's happening. So do ask that question. What are you doing now? You know, so what are you doing? Yeah. And I, I also think there's, there's a lot of pressure on people that are making the biggest amount of damage to this. So single mom of three that takes their kids to school goes for a walk picks their kids up gives them a meal that she's too exhausted to put together from scratch has a play with their kids and then goes to bed and gets up and does it all over again i don't think that she's sat there thinking it's on her to to change this i don't she might be worried about it she'll hear it on the news and she might think you know what i'm not happy about that for how much of my life can I realistically change? Then you've got companies, organizations. I think we touched, we touched on energy, we touched on transport, we touched on food. It's the systems and people that are responsible for those systems that can do more and actually shift things. And I found that the average person may sit there and think that it's not on them it's on the systems it's on these organizations it's on these big companies to do it because from the top down it affects her as well so it, if everyone stopped producing she can't then buy it for want of a better expression if there's no plastic being used for packaged goods anywhere she can't possibly buy it and then yeah because she does buy it she's then confirming the system is working and that's why they keep doing it and that's where they don't change because she buys it but i don't think in my very slightly humble opinion that it's up to the average person to do that because, if they, I... because they, 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 they might just buy whatever's available to them and if it's if plastic, just... it's only so far uh... she can go yeah, if I can add though, Michael, let's use her as your example. She's raising Sarah. And if Sarah is all of a sudden in power and running a country, she can, this next generation can actually make that change you need done. So it has to start, it has to start with, uh, with every one of us. Eco-anxiety is at its highest peak and and there, there's so many impacts coming from that. I think that there, the, there is a lot of hope and, and that's what I'd don't like about a lot of climate conversations is, is there hope gets disappeared. I think there's hope. I, I'm not, I think I, I know there's hope. There has to be hope. Otherwise, what am I waking up sitting in this chair for? You know, but I, I think whether it's Sarah or it's Sarah's next kid, um, someone is going to be in power at some point to make these big, this tough decisions. Um, if the current governments, current uh, CEOs, uh, current shareholders are not making the decision, somebody will, somebody has to. Yeah, I, I like the generational aspect of it as well. I mean, I, I can't tell you how often I, I think about how a teenager might think and think, oh, we've come a long way. And I don't think I had any influence in how the teenagers think about climate change and how, how environmentally aware that they are. And I think in some cases, it's, it, it's about the exposure to the ideas. That's been happening at a phenomenal rate. Like, I mean, I... I didn't grow up with technology and I'm in my 30s. So if someone's 12, 13, they get so much information now compared to what they used to. And it, there's a part of me that hopes that there is somebody listening to this or someone will be interact with one of you in some way that is eventually going to be in a position of power and influence over the system. And it's the values of that person that's going to make a difference. What do they value? What's important to them? Are they a climate conscious person? Are they prepared to absorb some of the costs because it makes them sleep better at night? It seems like it is. What do they value? Is it important to them? 
I think it's Jamie that although she does keep coming back to it, it's it's money, it's incentives, it's why do we do it? It's why should they do it? Why should they change? Why should they improve? And if someone comes back to it and says, you sleep better at night, they might sleep fine already. So, so that they might sleep perfectly fine already. They have to sit, they have to go to work and like the fact that they are not making as big of a negative dent on the planet as they used to. That that has to get them excited, happy, wanting to do that. It seems like it's a human issue. I wonder what your thoughts are, Colin, on that, and whether you think we'll ever be in a position where that will happen, whether that will actually come to pass. Uh, I, I think we've we've talked about a number of the parameters that are involved here. Uh, Boaz has mentioned solutions. The solutions to many of these problems are already out there. The plastic problem is not a plastic problem. We have cellulose that we can produce some plant material. We can replace bags and plastic bags and plastic packaging relatively easily. Okay, more investments needed, but the beginnings of the solution are there. So we've got the solutions already. I think it was Jamie who talked about, you know, production processes don't change if they're not broken. Now, that is one of the factors of inertia in the system. If if it's still working, where is the incentive for that company to shift from A to B? It's not there. We're not getting those. We're not getting those incentives. So that comes back to this point that we talked about. I think Jane mentioned it at the beginning about regulatory environments. So it's really good to hear Brad say that daughter is going to be a leader, political leader, because it's the regulatory environments that we are missing that are incentivizing some of these shifts. We have we don't have regulatory environments that optimize energy, transport, agriculture, and energy. And where's the biggest example of that? Well, the biggest example is what do we do with our tax dollars? We use them to subsidize the fossil fuel industry. I mean, the International Monetary Fund estimated a couple of years ago, I think it's 2022, that the subsidies, the collective subsidies for fossil fuel industry is seven trillion. That's 7.1% of global GDP. Why are we funding the destruction of the planet with tax dollars? Why aren't we using tax dollars to fund solutions to the plastic problem, to the pesticide problem, to the to the renewable energy challenge? Because we have the solutions. We just need to get them from small scale to large scale. And the key here is the deny. it's very easy to deny something. It's very difficult to prove something. We knew that with tobacco 20, 30 years ago. The tobacco industry is still a huge industry at the global level. It's just shifted from markets where people are educated to markets where people are uneducated because they're just using simple triggers to get people to buy cigarettes. So you know, the fossil fuel industry has a huge role to play in denial. It has a huge role to play in greenwashing. And as a result, everybody thinks things are fine and that their individual actions can make a difference. They can if it's about shifting to plant-based diets. It can if it's about not flying. And they can if it's about getting out on the street and demanding their governments to take responsibility for you know, the changes that we need. I think those things are the things that we need to be focusing on. You think we're never just, we're always just going to be ice skating uphill if the government is putting trillions into the opposite? Stupid question, I know, but do you think do you think like you know, is someone yeah. someone's going okay? I'm going to recycle my plastic, and they look at the budget and think it's a lot of plastic bags. Yeah, because I, I think the other thing that we're missing is yeah, those phones are going to cost a bit more, but more people are going to have a living wage to be able to afford to buy the phones, to be able to afford to buy your hairdressing salon services. So everybody's going to be better off. What we've got at the moment yeah. is polarization. I think I think it's Bradley talked about, you know, we need a collective, we need a collective ethos. We need to all work collectively to these solutions. What we're being told in social media and through the media at the moment is think about yourself and everybody else is the problem. It's that, you know, it's that king standing on the on the parapet of his castle, looking out at the people with the pitchforks, the people with the torches. And his advisor says, Don't worry, what we've got to do is persuade the people with the pitchforks that those with the torches want to take their pitchforks off them. And then we can stay living in this castle. We'll be happy. <laughs> it's almost like the infighting keeps them safe, doesn't it? Like they're too busy bothered worrying about each other. 
Um, and it, it, it does make me wonder what, I mean, well, can we actually make a difference? I know we've mentioned things like renewable energy, plant-based diets, less flying. There's, there's some things that we can collectively do, and it's making me think, what else is there? Like, what, what else can we do? What are some of the needle movers? I wonder if we can actually finish on like, the needle moving things that we can do. And I'm trying my best to do some of these things every day, taking my car less, cycling. I, I am close enough to where I would like to go. So that, that's handy location, location, location. I'm sure, you know, you, you don't have to do the things that are unsustainable if you don't have to. But what can the average person do if everyone on the planet was listening to this episode they got this far into the episode and they want something that they can do if it would make a difference if everybody did it what are the i don't know top three or five things that we can do who wants to take on that i i would say that like knowledge is power right um but also there's so many things on the internet right now um and just having a science-based background just you know, it's normal to want to have knowledge and gain knowledge on certain topics, but be very mindful and be mindful that everything that you see on Google and on the internet is not accurate. Just, you know, try and see if you have scientific facts to back up what you're looking at. Just try and make an educated assumption based on that and make sure that there's, you know, some sort of science or data to back something up. And and don't be quick to judge. Um, it's very easy to judge things on the internet right now and just, you know, just be mindful and open and just gain knowledge. It's it's, it's the best thing that you could do. And I really think that eventually something's going to happen. I don't know if it's going to be good or bad, but there's going to be something that's going to trigger this change. Uh, there has to be because we can't just keep going on the way that we are, whether it's like, an, you know, an, another like weather event, whether it's, um, you know, the shift in generations like everyone's been talking about where these older politicians are now going to be going out and you have a phase in of these younger folks, there's something that's going to be really, really big that does happen that's going to trigger something and trigger this change. But just, you know, when we get there or as we get there, just keep gaining knowledge and keep learning. Go ahead, Brad. Do you want to add to that? Yeah, I, I agree with Jamie that the education is going to be key here. You know, that's a big part of what, corporations need to do as well as continue to move money into into some of their education side of things um everyone does not just not just the educators um but also on top of that there's kind of three things we kind of focus on and, and that's that we need everyone to be here and, and i hope everyone is which is to be bold uh, to stretch your thinking and go faster uh, we need all three of those to, to happen right now do you think it is about speed, Brad? Like, do you think like, if it happened quickly enough, we wouldn't necessarily feel the inertia, would we? And what the the angle I'm coming from is if it took a month to do it, we don't have a month of this kind of anguish and waiting and suffering going on while we figure it out. It'd only be a month because it's happened that, that quickly, but it's in fact taken years because it might take that long to solve. I don't know how complex these problems are. I don't know what Venn diagram of perfect ingredients that we need are all meshing together to create the perfect storm of solutions. But in order to... The reason why we're having this conversation is because it is taking long enough for people to really feel the problem. If it only took a month or two, People may, may not really feel it. Maybe they're just feeling things getting a bit more expensive, but it's more sustainable. They're noticing everything else getting less around them, you know, like the less clouds and we can finally see the stars at night and all of a sudden it makes everything better. And it, it, it just makes me think, is it just about speed? And how can we speed it up? Well, we have to go faster, but it, it is in a short period. This is this is a this is a cultural shift of who we who we need to be in the for now and in the future. So the, this and culture takes time. No no culture can shift unless there's a catalytic event. If and if there is something that that you know makes us make that shift, then then that's what it's going to do. But what I'm hearing, and I am not a scientist, so I, I don't speak of that. But I'm hearing from the scientists, you know, the planet is going faster than we thought. 
So she's going faster. So we better pick up our game and, and get in, involved here. Because as a lady once said to me, because our saying used to be help helping save our planet. And and we changed the word our first off because we don't own this planet. This is this is this is a human problem. <laughs> the planet's fine, is what she said. The planet's not doesn't need saving. You need saving. We need saving. The planet's going to be fine. So we changed it to to helping save the planet. It it is the planet, and she'll correct herself. And so we better get get our head straight. One of the benefits of the planet is it's a lot more proactive than we seem to be, uh, changing itself and, and correcting itself. And you know, I I wonder if I mean, like, as soon as Colin mentioned the the T word trillions in terms of funding for the fossil fuels and anti renewable energy, um, it it just doesn't bode well if that's happening. I I, I get the impression that if we took that and funded renewables and sustainable food production and all that we could we could potentially solve the problem in that magic month that i came up with that we probably could solve it in that time if we just allocated the funds elsewhere it would happen faster because same thing with like research for chronic conditions and diseases and it's the money that helps speed that up. I know they talk about, you know, throwing money at the problem doesn't solve it quicker, but it must help be able to fund everything, the extra research, the tweaks, the extra experiments, keep it going, keep it going, keep it going. And it takes the constant, continuous ability to do that. The only way you have the freedom to do all of those things is if you can actually financially do it. Uh, Colin, what do you have to say to that? Yeah, so we need to, we need to, to treat the climate emergency like the emergency that it is. It's a global emergency. Everybody's in this challenge and we need to we need to treat it like an emergency. We need to mobilize behind that emergency in a way. In 2015, when the Paris Agreement was signed, the funding locked into the Paris Agreement was this, this imaginary target of $100 billion. $100 billion starting 2020, uh, for five years up to 2025, and then a new target would be set. Now, 100 billion, sadly, has not been re- achieved. We're at about 80 billion globally, but we're not at the 100 billion. So we're not even we're not even meeting commitments that were made in 2009 to deliver money in 2020. That's 100 billion to tackle a climate emergency globally. As I said earlier, seven trillion in 2022 for fossil fuel subsidies. That was five trillion in 2020. So that's gone up two trillion in t- in two years. The no- the amount of fossil fuel subsidies. Now they're the IMF figures. A lot of the figures can be disputed, but even if it was one trillion overestimated, we're still talking six trillion, which that hundred billion pales into insignificance. So what do we have to do to get the sort of level of funding that we're talking about in terms of fossil fuel subsidies moved into climate action? And then we'd have sustainable food systems. Then we'd have smallholder farmers paid for custodianship of carbon in landscapes that are kept there locked for generations. That's the sort of level of change we need. We know it's possible. 2019, 2020, COVID-19 arrived on the scene. Governments mobilized immediately overnight and made the sorts of shifts that were needed to tackle that challenge. Took us a few years to get over it because it was a pandemic, a global pandemic. Many people died who probably didn't need to, but they fixed the problem. We're not seeing the same level of of action for climate change. And that's, I think, the one thing that I would say to people listening to the podcast. Write to your MP, write to those people who are in power, write to CEOs, write to political leaders and demand action. Because if we don't, our children and their grandchildren are going to live in a world that's going to be just racked by emergencies and i think the one that i'm really worried about is the heat problem we're seeing the heat problem manifest in developed developing countries we're seeing it manifest in in urban areas you might be fine now with your with your air conditioning but what what happens when your air conditioning system breaks down because it's being overloaded because everybody needs it what are we going to have we're going to massive fatalities in urban areas this is just crazy we're walking into a problem that we can fix. We've got the solution to fix. We just need the political will. The solution's already out there. Let's get let's get shifted. And in in, in action, I think the politic the politics means that we need to elect the local, regional, 
and uh, you know nation-level politicians that support these causes because there's no shortage of politicians that think this is not an urgent pro- problem. So part of the, one of the best things we can do is to support support the politicians that that you know are committed to to take action, whether it's on reducing subsidies for for brown or or, or you know. Uh, unsustainable technologies or increasing, and as as we saw, I agree with Colin 100. You know, the world can change this if the politicians are committed. But what's happening now is that there's all this divide in you know, many countries around the world of you know people that say that this is not a real issue, this is not an urgent issue. You know, people are trying, and and it's up to to the citizens of the world to select and elect um, the politicians that understand these issues and that will, will, will come are committed to take action i think that's a a fantastic way to round off this has been great i think we've highlighted the problem i think we've put together some solutions and i think in a way we just need to be able to get together to collaborate to work as a team to to solve the problem so Brad, Colin, Boas, Sarah, Jamie, it's been fantastic. I really enjoyed having you on. I'll put links to how people can connect with you, follow you, and reach out to you about maybe it's their experience. Maybe they want to ask a question about the work that you're doing. And I think it's great. So thanks so much for taking the time. It's been fantastic. And I look forward to keeping in touch. Thanks so much. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Bye.